0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu.
1: Just a heads up, y'all. The following podcast contains explicit language, so you know. It's going to
2: be some cussing. So use your headphones or send little children. You're out listening everywhere.
1: to Code Switch from NPR. I'm Gene Demby
2: and I'm Karen Grigsby Bates. Ha! plot twist. Yes, I'm sitting in for
1: Shereen. Okay, KGB. It's so good to have you on the pod. It's like it's been a minute since you've been on the pod.
2: That's another pod. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So what do we owe this good fortune?
2: Well, it's October, mm-hmm. which is traditionally a month full of tricks, usually a little later in the month, but whatever. But because y'all out there have been such good little code switchers slugging through all this grim news with us for the past several months. Has it only been months? It feels like a couple of years, but yeah, it's only been months. So we thought we'd offer you a treat this uh, time around. I love treats. So this week, we're bringing you a few pieces from NPR's American Anthem series, which showcases songs that have taken on deeper social and political resonances over the years. Today, we have four new anthems. First, we're going to hear from our Code Switch teammate, Adrian Florido. Ah,
1: There's a name I haven't heard in a minute. On the podcast, anyway. Adrian has been in Puerto Rico for months covering the devastation and recovery after Hurricane Maria and the ouster of the island's former governor, Ricardo Rosello.
2: Yeah, that was a lot of work, and he's still doing it. Mm -hmm. But while he was on the islands, Adrian kept hearing this one song everywhere. It's En Mi Viejo San Juan, In My Old San Juan. And it's a song that seems as appropriate today as it was when it was written way back during World War II. Here's Adrian with the history of the unofficial anthem of Puerto Rico.
3: Puerto Ricans have been leaving their island for much of its modern history forced too often by economic necessity or war, or as we saw recently, natural disasters like Hurricane Maria and its aftermath. Eloy Estrada left during World War II when the U.S. government came calling on its colony in the Caribbean.
4: He was sent to Panama when there was servicio militar obligatorio,
3: when there was the draft. Emanuel Dufrasne is a music professor at the University of Puerto Rico. And as the story goes, he says, Eloy Estrada was homesick, and in a letter home, he asked his big brother, the composer Noel Estrada, to write him a song capturing the longing he felt to be back on his beloved island. What Noel came up with was En Mi Viejo San Juan, first recorded by El Trio Vega Vajeño in
4: 1943. En mi viejo San Juan, cuántos sueños, En mis años de infancia...
3: In my old San Juan, Estrada's lyrics begin... How many dreams I forged during the years of my youth. He's saying
4: that in one afternoon he left towards a foreign country because destiny had it that way, but his heart stayed in front of the sea in old San Juan.
3: As it happened, the song coincided with the start of the biggest wave of migration in Puerto Rico's history. From 1945 and into the 60s, hundreds of thousands of people left, they were drawn to the U.S. by its booming post-World War economy. They were also pushed by U.S. policies that industrialized Puerto Rico, but destroyed the farms on which most people
4: worked. Goodbye, goodbye,
3: goodbye, the song says. There's a, let's say, an enchanting
4: simplicity and that makes it a good candidate to be a musical success.
3: In the decades that followed, En Mi Viejo San Juan was recorded by all kinds of artists, Puerto Rican and international. Its popularity exploded when Mexican singer Javier Solís released this version in 1965. En mi
4: viejo San Juan Cuántos sueños forjé En mis noches de infancia
3: By the time this recording came out, many people who'd hoped to be gone only a few years found they still hadn't returned, a tragedy reflected in the song's most poignant lyric.
0: In the part where it says,
4: Ya mi cabello blanqueó that his hair has become white because he has been away a long time and then he feels that ya la muerte me llama death is calling me and he, no quiero morir alejado de ti that part I, I can get very emotional because i imagine that person he was um, close to death and then he wants to return to his homeland and he cannot
3: On a recent afternoon in Old San Juan, musicians Francisco Marrero and Braulio Salva played the song for me on guitar and the Cuatro Puerto Riqueño. Marrero works for Puerto Rico's National Foundation for Popular Culture, and we went for a walk through Old San Juan.
5: I think we, Puerto Rican, have a lot for our
3: Más allá de las diferencias sociales que pueda, de las diferencias políticas, me refiero, y diferencias sociales de clase. We Puerto Ricans have such a deep love for our homeland, Marrero said, a love that transcends social and political and class differences. And it's a love that often grows much deeper and stronger among Puerto Ricans who've left. That was true for those who left around when En Mi Viejo San Juan was written, and it's still true. Ana Margarita Irizarri left to study in Chicago in 2005, the year before Puerto Rico's economy plunged into a recession that it's still struggling under. When they were ready to return to the island, she and her husband searched for jobs but found nothing.
2: I started to sing to myself. in uh, Mi Viejo San Juan, that moment I realized it was going to be hard to move back. And as the economy got worse, and progressively worse, as it has, that option felt further away.
3: When they could, they'd come to Puerto Rico to visit.
2: And that's when every time I would leave on the plane, that's the song, you know, I would like, it was like the soundtrack in my head, right? That song would just like resonate and make me cry every time.
3: Last year, after 13 years away, Irizarri finally came home. She considers herself lucky. Many never get the chance. This is René Pérez, a popular rapper better known as Residente. He made his homecoming last year after more than three years off the island. The show filled Puerto Rico's biggest baseball stadium. It was eight months after Hurricane Maria. Many people who fled the storm's aftermath still hadn't returned. And emotions were raw because the exodus was continuing by the thousands, as budget cuts and austerity imposed by a federal board that took control of the island's finances have made it even harder for people to get by. There was this beautiful moment, though, when Pérez invited Justin Pertil, a guitarist, to come out on stage and riff for a while. It took a moment for the packed stadium to realize what Pertil was playing. When they did, Presidente raised his arms, inviting the entire stadium to sing one of Puerto Rico's most popular anthems. ¶¶
2: Just makes me tear up every time I hear it. I hate to have tissues nearby whenever. I, and I, I've listened to this about four or five times. and It gets me every single time. It's
1: really beautiful. But wipe your eyes, KGB. We're about to pivot. <laughs> Whole different vibe now. Uh, it's a song about empowerment. No eye wiping. More like fists in the air. It's by Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions.
2: We're a Winner is the formal title of the song, although it's often called Moving On Up because that's in the chorus. See, oh my God. So, Confusion, confusion. We're moving on up. It is not the theme song you identify with George and Weezy Jefferson. It's not about that deluxe apartment in the sky.
1: I have been listening to the song forever, and I had it on my running playlist at one point. I just always assumed it was called Moving On Other Bananas.
2: Hey, the power of research, my brother.
1: <laughs> NPR's TV critic and code switch play cousin Eric Deggans got in his Wayback Machine to take a look at how We're winner morphed into an anthem of black pride and power.
5: It sounds like Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions recorded it during a party, but We're a Winner had a message as serious as death and taxes. I was two years old when We're a Winner was first released, but I grew up in a home filled with Mayfield and the Impressions, thanks to my record-buying mother. And even as a young black child in Gary, Indiana, I felt a dose of hope and pride from hearing lyrics like, never let anybody say, boy, you can't make it because a feeble mind is in your way. I didn't know it then, but before We're a Winner, there weren't many hit songs by black artists telling black people to be proud. It meant something to hear a melody pouring out of the radio telling me a quality was just around the corner. So it was a treat to ask Sam Gooden, who sang alongside Mayfield in the Impressions, what inspired the song. He said Mayfield wrote We're a Winner to help civil rights activists like Martin Luther King Jr. because the group was working too much to actually march with them.
2: He said this particular song is a song that I think we should use to spread some of uh, Dr. King's messages across the country.
5: We felt that would uplift not only our people, but all people. Turns out, We're a Winner was third in a progression of hit songs for Mayfield, with each tune talking more explicitly about the fight for equality. First came Keep on Pushing in 1964.
6: Keep on pushing. I've got to keep on
5: pushing. Keep on pushing delivered a general message of encouragement. A year later, the hit People Get Ready said justice was coming soon. People get ready as a train acom where a winner arrived in 1967. Fred Cash, who also sang with Mayfield and Gooden in the Impressions, said Mayfield worked as a one-man hit machine, writing the music and lyrics for songs by himself, often when they were touring. He would write one or two o'clock in the morning, sitting on the side of the bed with his guitar and his robe on, And if he felt like
6: he had something that he wanted us to hear, he would knock on the door and care if we were asleep
5: or what. Sam Gooden says by then Mayfield was irritated by criticism the impression's messages were too vague. I think he got a bit angry and he said, uh, why beat around the bush? Why not just walk right straight up and
2: just say what you're going to say and they like it or they don't like it?
5: Now, as a kid, I assumed we winner's lyrics always included in-your-face references to Martin Luther King Jr. and the stereotype of an Uncle Tom. But it turns out he only sang those lyrics on a 1971 concert recording from the album Curtis Live*.
6: There'll be no more Uncle Tom oh, At last that blessed day has come And we will a winner And everybody knows it too We just keep on pushing like Martin Luther told you to...
5: According to Cash and Gooden, producer Johnny Pate said there was no way those lyrics could go in the studio version in 1967. Pate, now age 95, doesn't remember that, but as a jazz musician who could read and write music, he does remember having a certain attitude about self-taught R&B players like Mayfield.
4: I kind of looked down upon them because, hey, these guys can't even write the music, you know? And then one day it hit me because of Curtis. Here's a guy who's writing
5: what he feels. No, he can't put it down on paper, but this is what he definitely feels in his heart and his soul. According to Cash and Gooden, despite the toned-down lyrics, some radio stations still wouldn't play We're a Winner, something Mayfield mentioned on the Curtis Live album.
6: A whole lot of stations didn't want to play that particular record, We're a Winner. I would say the way I'm sure most of you would say, we don't give a damn, we're a winner anyway. Right on
5: WLS was a powerful Top 40 radio station in Chicago. Fred Cash and Sam Gooden say the white, pop-oriented WLS wouldn't play We're a Winner because it sounded too militant. But Clark Weber, who was program director at the 50,000-watt station back then, says it just didn't have the right sound.
4: The R&B sound was enough for most white stations to say, I'm sorry, we can't. My audience would respond saying, What are you doing playing that? And sponsors would call and say... That market is not the market I'm going after. I'm looking for an affluent white market, and you're not giving me that kind of audience.
5: Still, We're a Winner became a number one R&B hit and top 20 pop hit. The song seemed to strike a nerve. A year later, in 1968, Sly and the Family Stone released their hit plea for equality, Everyday People, and James Brown crafted his classic Black Pride anthem. Addressing civil rights could become a hit-making strategy. The Reverend Jesse Jackson says Mayfield had a talent for reaching the marketplace. The civil rights leader was a longtime friend of Mayfield's, who performed at one of the legendary expos held by Jackson's Operation Push in Chicago during the early 1970s. When I asked about Mayfield's impact, Jackson talked about how music could sway people when protests didn't. It's far about struggle, Chris could put that to music.
4: I can say that a speech or a sermon. Chris gets exact from that rhythm of music. Music is the medium for the message. And so we're one as a
5: part of that legacy. Mayfield left the Impressions in 1970 for a solo career. In 1990, he was paralyzed after a piece of scaffolding fell on him at a concert. He died in 1999. I talked to Aaron Cohen, author of the upcoming book, Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. He says Mayfield's accident came just as journalists began writing more about his influence. I remember this in the late 1980s when Public Enemy and Ice-T were coming out with their, you know, very outspoken raps. People started to realize that Curtis Mayfield was the forefather of a lot of that. And the tragedy is that was just before the accident in Brooklyn. For me, more than 50 years later, We're a Winner's upbeat, smooth appeal certifies Mayfield's legacy as a smartly subversive activist, inspiring other artists to blend potent social commentary with an irresistible beat.
2: Gene, did you hear Eric say he was two years old when We're a Winner was released? Just a bit. Wow. Just a little Wow. Baby. But pride, power, and a danceable beat? Can't argue with that.
1: So here's the thing about Curtis, uh, God rest his soul. Uh, but, okay, so he had a song called We're a Winner that everyone thought was Moving On Up. Then he had another song called Move On Up, which is not either Moving On Up or We're a Winner. Why was this man, what was his title situation? Why was, why was he so...
2: He was pouring all his creativity into the lyrics. Yeah, he, definitely... he wasn't worried about the title. You know, creative genius.
1: He is a genius. That is true.
2: When we come back, a feminist anthem with no tolerance for male slackers.
1: I think
0: already people know what this is.
2: Some people will.
0: Stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact.
2: We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer.
0: To learn more, go to cancer.org.
2: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer?
5: An incident in Nashville that shocked the Latino community. A computer designed to control the entire Chilean economy. A Martian invasion in Ecuador. Radio Ambulante is back with a brand new season. NPR's Spanish-language podcast will take you around Latin America to show you the fascinating, strange, and compelling stories of the region. Subscribe and listen every Tuesday. Jean.
2: Karen.
1: Code cool, Twitch. All right, KGB, what is next?
2: Jean i bet you didn't ever think you'd hear NPR and Real Housewives in the same sentence, right?
1: Oh my God, Is NeNe, Nene? We have a Nene song right here? What's going on? This is
2: not a Nene song, no. <laughs> <laughs> but in the interest of serious investigative journalism, Sidney Madden of NPR Music talked with singer, producer, and original Atlanta housewife Candy Burris to ah. find out how no scrubs... Her hip-hop anthem for Serious Sisters has stayed in rotation for two decades. It's been sung by a whole bunch of groups, from TLC, who sang the original, to Weezer.
1: I'm sorry. Weezer? Like the the smug rock and roll dudes?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. You'll see. Here's Sydney. In
7: 1998, songwriter Candy Burris was living in Atlanta. She was listening to a piece of music in her car given to her by fellow songwriter Kevin Shakespeare Briggs.
6: No lyrics, no melody, just the music.
7: Candy was riding around Atlanta with one of her girlfriends.
6: And we were talking trash about these two guys that we were dating. And so I started freestyling over the track and I was just like um, a scrub is a guy that thinks he's fly and is also known as a buster always talking about what he wants and just sits on his fat ass
7: by this time Candy had already thought of the title of No Scrubs she'd written it down in a notebook from there Candy, along with fellow songwriter Tamika Tiny Coddle quickly put the song together they thought they'd record it but instead they ended up selling it to a bigger group TLC and TLC ran with it a scrub is a guy that thinks he's fine is also known as a buster.
6: Always talking about what he wants and just sits on his broken ass. So, no, I don't want your number. No, I don't want to get. A
7: few words were changed. Among them, fat became broke. It helped to paint the picture of a scrub, a guy with no purpose. These tweaks had a lot to do with TLC's image they were confident, bold, independent women. No Scrubs was successful both commercially and culturally. They made a term already popular in Atlanta, universal.
6: Well, a scrub is just a bomb guy, you know, and just not good, you don't want to bring him home.
7: That's Rosonda Chili Thomas, you know, the C in TLC. No Scrubs worked for a couple of reasons. For one, the song was propelled by a dope futuristic video. Second, the marketing was smart. It was released in two versions, one was a straight R&B song and the other one had a rap verse from TLC's Lisa Left Eye Lopez. If you can't spatially expand my horizons Then it leaves you in a class with scrubs, never rising I don't find a surprise, and if you don't have the cheese To please me and bounce from here to the coast of overseas So
6: let me give you something
7: to think about At a time when late 90s hip-hop and R&B was saturated with misogyny And damsel-in-distressed potlines Candy says no scrubs helped to flip the script
6: It almost made it th- This song almost made it to where guys felt like They couldn't ride to an event together anymore It was like a wake-up
7: call for guys like Sean Armstrong, a.k.a. DJ Face. He remembers playing the song in D.C. area clubs when it first came out.
5: Guys started, like, checking themselves, like, am I a scrub? Like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm out here dancing to this way. And you had to really think. I had to think, you know. I've been in the passenger side. I haven't really... <laughs> I haven't... Nah, I don't really lean out the window hollering at women. Like, I have my own car. I got, I got a job. Nah, I'm not a scrub. Like, you had to take yourself off the list.
7: But Chili says it's not guys like DJ Face who have to worry.
2: I always say the guys that are getting upset are the scrubs. If you're not a scrub, then, you know, a hit dog will holler, right? So if that's not who you are, then you shouldn't be getting upset.
7: (laughs) In the two decades since the song was released, it's never really gone away. It's inspired many covers across all genres by men and women. This one's from British R&B singer Georgia Smith.
4: Scrub is a guy that thinks
7: he's fun But also known as a buster Always talking about what he
4: wants
7: And just sits on his broadcast. ass oh. No, I don't want to meet you nowhere no. Here's country star Casey Musgraves I don't want to no scrub Scrub is a guy that can't get no love from me
4: Hanging up the passenger side
7: of the And this one's by the rock band Weezer At the end of the day, the original is still popular. Sophie Pulati is currently an NPR intern, and she says the song was a hit at her junior proms just last spring.
2: There was just
3: screams of recognition from a bunch of girls, and they just were pulling each other to the dance floor. These are people who were born after the song was released. Girls especially can relate, you know, having that kind of struggle with like a guy who's not worth their time.
7: DJ Will Eastman hosts 90s parties like this one at the 930 Club in Washington, D.C. In fact, he named his party after the TLC single. And he knows what kind of response he'll get when he drops the song.
3: There's an electricity that exists in the room and you can feel it wash over the crowd. And for that three or four minutes, we're all in it together.
7: And after playing it for years, he finally gets its
3: message. It's a pop song, it's an R&B song, but there's also a subversive element to No Scrubs, which is, look, you are not in charge here. I'm in charge, I have agency here. And people, that resonates with people.
7: Back when they first recorded No Scrubs, TLC's Chili Thomas recognized its power.
3: I knew it
2: was a girl anthem, hands down.
7: And she's proud of its legacy.
2: I feel really happy because even though you can jam to it, you dance or whatever, I know that the girls are
6: listening. And the guys are too.
7: Songwriter Candy Burris agrees.
6: You know, as women, we go through things every day, all day, all day all day long no matter where we go you know somebody is gonna try to push up or trying to holler at you they're not always a gentleman about it and so I feel like this song it definitely just put it out there we're not with it we're not feeling it and it just made women be a little bit more outspoken I don't no
4: scrum,
6: scrum no
1: from I'm so glad Twitter wasn't around back then because there would have been hit dogs hollering for months on end, and it'd have been arguments. Uh, it would have been a mess.
2: But Jean, this may be more impetus for you to learn to drive, cause you know, the scripts are only in the passenger side. You don't want to be mistaken.
1: But I'm in the passenger side of my wife's ride, so is that okay? <laughs> All right, so we're pivoting from one dance floor anthem to another one.
2: It was born in the disco era, was the only song ever to be given a Grammy for disco. And Gene, it is one of the most sung songs in karaoke. So you may have heard it many times before if you hang out in karaoke joints. You know exactly what it is when you hear that opening arpeggio.
1: I imagine like if you work at a karaoke joint, it's I will survive and Don't Stop believing. Like, you must hear those two songs every night.
2: Uh, Yes, this is when you step away from the turntable for a minute, go have a stiff drink, and return. (laughs) That's
1: Gloria Gaynor, obviously, obviously, who first sang I Will Survive in 1978.
2: 1978. Were you even born then, Gene? Oh, uh, that was a little before me.
1: Uh but 40 years later, people are still covering it. One of my first experiences with the song actually was the Method Man song that interpolated I Will Survive. I and all
6: you uh. niggas in the industry, your careers won't be Wow.
2: I've never heard this at all, but that's a generational divide right there on the air, but they certainly took the melody.
1: And our next piece is about I Will Survive, and I think you'll recognize the reporter.
2: Gloria Gaynor likes to say I Will Survive was born in New York's Studio 54, the country's most famous, hardest-to-get-into discotheque. Celebrities behaved outrageously there and danced all night to pulsing disco beats. (gasps) Gaynor often sang there. She told WXPN's World Cafe that one night she and a friend took advanced copies of I Will Survive to the club back in 1978.
6: We gave it to the DJ there. He played it while we were standing there. And the audience immediately loved it, which told me this is a hit song. New Yorkers don't immediately love anything. They are so jaded. Studio
2: 54's DJ shared the record with other DJs, and the rest is disco history. In important ways, I Will Survive is the story of Gloria Gaynor's own survival. A few years earlier, in 1975, Gaynor hit Billboard's top 10 with this Jackson 5 cover. After that, she had no big hits, so Polydor, her record label, told her her contract wouldn't be renewed. And then she had a horrific accident. She described it to Beth Anderson, Audible's publisher.
6: I had fallen on stage doing a show at the Beacon Theater in New York, woke up the next morning paralyzed from the waist down, and I have always believed that God allowed that to happen so that he could get my attention.
2: Gaynor had spinal surgery and spent three months in the hospital. When she got out, she wore a heavy brace for several more months. But then, some luck. Polydor changed presidents, and the new guy had a song he was sure would be a hit for her. It was called Substitute.
6: substitute
2: But Polydor's president was the only one convinced it could be a hit. Producers Freddie Perrin and Dino Ficaris agreed to do it if they could put a song they'd written on the flip or B-side. They'd been looking for the right person to sing it. Gainer told Audible she came into the studio still strapped into that big
6: back brace. They said, we think you're the one that we've been waiting for. When I read the lyrics, I realized that the reason they had been waiting for me to record that song was that God had given them that song to set aside, waiting for him to get everything in order for me to meet up with them, and that song was I Will Survive.
2: Master drummer James Gadson was part of the studio band that day and remembers Freddie Perrin coaxing them to stay a little longer and do one more song.
7: And he said, well, man, I know everybody's tired, but uh, let's just do this uh, one Song and uh, in fact, I'll play the intro. It was a great producer played keyboards mm-hmm. on that one. That was the B side. We just cut it and uh, that was it. We went home three weeks later.
4: Bam,
2: <laughs> bam indeed. "I Will Survive" became an almost instant hit. It felt like you couldn't go anywhere without hearing it, including Europe, where Gainer was already popular. Demand for her soared. The song coincided with the very beginning of the AIDS crisis. Karen Tongson was young then. Now she's a professor who often lectures on pop culture at the University of Southern California.
4: I was around 19. It was especially significant for me to hear it in the 1990s because I had just come out. The song took on a deeper
2: meaning for her. Tongson connected with the lyrics through a cover version. She'd never heard Gloria Gaynor's original but she learned its history. The song had long associations
4: with the LGBT community as an anthem, but in my newfound activism and in my new sort of awareness around the different struggles the community faced, particularly the AIDS crisis, I've heard the song with new ears, and I heard its urgency through that lens. I Will Survive
2: became a global anthem, not only for the gay community, but for people who felt politically oppressed, physically challenged, or pushed to society's margins. In fact, Gloria Gaynor became a spokesperson on domestic violence issues. Cindy Southworth heads the National Network to End Domestic Violence, where Gaynor is an advocate. Southworth says Gaynor appeared at the organization's global conference in 2012.
3: She sang her song, and singing along with her were 1,500 advocates from across the globe, many of them survivors of abuse themselves. Singing in beautiful accents, I Will Survive, was one of the highlights of my career.
6: And i been so many nights, just feeling sorry for myself. I used to cry, but now I hold my head up high.
2: Last year, I Will Survive celebrated its 40th anniversary, and it's still going strong it's sung in karaoke bars played by marching bands even symphonies it's almost operatic in scope so of course it's perfect for divas
7: and i, grew strong, and I learned how to get-
6: stupid a like lot i should have made you leave your key if i had known for just one second you'd be back to bother me go on
5: now, go walk out the door miss piggy you just yep. here <laughs> cuz you're not welcome anymore. that
2: was miss ross miss franklin and miss piggy respectively Karen Thompson says the driving beat, coupled with lyrics going from despair to empowerment, make I Will Survive a deeply personal song
4: for a lot of people. That chorus is like coming out of the dark, coming into the light.
6: I will survive.
2: It's an anthem for people who can exult that they've survived despite what life has thrown at them.
1: All right, y'all. That's our show. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch. You can follow me at geedee E E two one five,
2: And me at at Karen Bates.
1: And we want to hear from you. Our email is Codeswitch at NPR.org. Sign up for our newsletter at NPR.org slash newsletter slash Codeswitch and subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Jess Kung and edited by Leah Donella. The individual pieces were edited by Ted Robbins and produced by Walter Ray Watson.
2: Shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam. Gamari Devarajan, Adrian Farido, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Steve Drummond, and L.A. Johnson. Our intern is Angela Vang. Shereen will be back next week.
1: But you know who will not be back next week? Sammy Yenigan. He's been our senior <laughs> editor for the last two years, but this is last week on Code Switch. set it off to consider all things with Audie and them. We'll miss you, homie.
2: We are so going to miss you, Sammy. I'm Gene Dunby. And I'm Karen grixby Bates.
3: Bees, y'all. See
6: ya.
2: You probably know a lot about former Vice President Joe Biden. But what you might not know is how his faith was tested when his wife and daughter
3: were killed in a car accident. God, God, why? You know, I got really angry. I I shouted out, why me? Why would he do this to me? How can there be a God to let
0: this happen?
2: Biden tells that story and explains his run for the presidency in an exclusive interview with the NPR Politics Podcast. Subscribe. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase plus earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through capital one travel your next trip is closer than you think with the venture card from capital one what's in your wallet terms apply see capital for details
0: this message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years right now NPR listeners can get rosetta stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for fifty percent off learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR this election season you can expect to hear a lot of news some of it meaningful much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out, what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First, every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts.